0: And we will read Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. And let's listen with reverence and joy because this is the word of our God and King. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I also perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever, Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Father, would you let the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate. How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those are the words of a poem by W.E. Henley. The poem's title kind of gives a hint as to its meaning. It's called Invictus, which is the the Latin word for unconquerable, undefeated. And the message of the poem is, is fairly simple. It is that the the times and the seasons, the circumstances and and happenings of W.E. Henley's life will not defeat him. They will not command him. He is the master of his fate, he says. He is the captain of his soul. He will not be dictated to by providence. He will not be subjected to the rhythms and seasons of life. He will not bow his head, he says. Instead, he claims he will rise above it all and be his own master. He will be in charge of his own life. And that resonates really deeply with us as Americans, doesn't it? We live in this deeply secular age, an age so ignorant of the transcendent and divine. We think of ourselves as being in charge of our lot and of our lives, And maybe we we wouldn't put it as brashly or audaciously as Henley did, but it's there nonetheless. Perhaps maybe if we rewrote these words, the meaning of these words, in a modern-day pop song, the words might be a little softer, they might be put in fairly like more kind of therapeutic terms. You know, all about how you create your own reality. That's a thing we say nowadays. You create your own reality. The idea being that if, if you think positive thoughts, if you put enough positive energy out there into the universe, they say, if we practice enough, positively, uh, enough, enough positivity and, and visualizations, then, then we can control and impact our destinies for the better. But is that true? The preacher wants you to know this morning that all of that, W.E. Henley's poem, the claims that we're the masters of our fate and destinies, that we create our own realities, all of that is sadly mistaken. Now, don't misunderstand. The preacher isn't disparaging our agency as human beings. We do make choices, and we are responsible for those choices, and therefore, we ought to make good choices, nor is the preacher kind of cautioning us against optimism. He's not calling us to be pessimistic or, or cynical. Instead, he's saying that those of us who think that we are actually in control and in charge of our lives, of our lots and lives, that those of us who believe that by our optimism or our pessimism that we're significantly impacting our destiny thereby, that we are just sadly mistaken. We're sadly mistaken. Instead, the preacher is is claiming in a poem very different from W.E. Henley's that we actually make very little contribution to the times and seasons and happenings of our lives. Instead, he claims that there are these kinds of of rhythms and seasons to life and they're similar to kind of like the, the currents and movements of the ocean. And we are to speak metaphorically, part of our lot in life is just to be subject to these currents and movements of this ocean of reality and, and, and we just kind of go where they take us. It's like we're stuck on a life raft, a small life raft out on the ocean and we're just drifting along to wherever the currents take us. And yet there's more to the preacher's message than that. He's not just saying that. By claiming that we are not in control of our lives and destinies and lot in life, He's not saying that there's no one in control and that there's no one in charge. No, the preacher confesses and he takes great comfort in the reality that there is a God who is actually in charge and in control of the times and seasons of our lives. And that while we simply cannot see everything he sees and cannot know everything he knows, we can trust and simply receive the seasons and times and rhythms of our lives because we know that they're in good hands. And so the big idea in this passage here is that wisdom calls us to trust God and receive the seasons and times He marks out for our lives. Wisdom calls us to trust God and receive the seasons and times He marks out for our lives. And we'll learn how we might do so by looking at the rhythms of providence, the obscurity of providence, the reception of providence, and the revering of providence, the rhythms, obscurity, reception, and revering of providence. First, the rhythms of providence. Now, as, as we begin our, our kind of journey through this text, we need to understand that the main goal and meaning of this text is to help us see that the various seasons and times and rhythms of our lives are from the hand of a sovereign God. Okay, I know that it's, it's very common to look at this particular text— And see, its main goal and purpose being that, you know, we meet with all sorts of different kinds of seasons of life that require us to act and respond in certain ways. That might be an implication of this text. However, that is not the the main goal and meaning of this text. The main goal and meaning of this text is, is to show us that God is sovereign over all the various seasons and times of our lives. In fact, the preacher says precisely this in verses 14 and 15. Look briefly, he says, I perceive that whatever God does, whatever he does, all of these various seasons, all of these various times, whatever he does, endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that his people might fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Now, the the way this is worded can be a little confusing, granted, in verse 14, he's not saying that all of God's works will last forever. We know that's not true. Instead, he's saying that what God does is unchangeable. You can't thwart God's sovereign purposes and his providential plans. You can't thwart them. They're beyond us. They are eternal. There are no rogue molecules in the universe. God exists and acts outside of time. The past and the future, they're completely open to him and they're open to his control and his charge therefore as verse 15 tells us the past can be entrusted to his providence and the future can be entrusted to his providence he says he seeks what has been driven away meaning that while that which is elusive to us that which is elusive to us the past with all of its complexities the future with all of its unknowns they belong to him and they belong to his sovereign plan they belong to his sovereign care what What he wants to happen is what happens, and what he wanted to happen is what happened. These are, there are absolutely no exceptions to his dominion, the preacher says. And as the sovereign one, God has ordered our lives in such a way that we meet with a certain variety of times and seasons in life. There's a kind of rhythm to our lives, isn't there? We kind of weave in and out of these different times and seasons in our lives. And the poem begins here by saying that there is a time to be born and a time to die. And then it goes on to name a a number of kind of different times and activities and seasons that we meet with between our births and our deaths. And he's trying to show that there is indeed a time, there's a season uh, for, for pretty much everything under heaven. And when he says every, he actually means every. Now, of course, he couldn't kind of list every season or circumstance that one might face in life. But notice that there are 14 lines to the poem. And as you very well might know, in Hebrew culture, the number seven represents completion. It's a, it's a, it's a, a kind of symbolic number. And in this being this kind of literature, that's significant for our interpretation of the preacher's showing. He's, He's trying to give us a complete picture of everything that happens in our lives under heaven, everything that happens, every season we meet with, every time we meet with. Of course, it's not an exhaustive list, but he's trying to show you that between your birth and your life, or between your birth and your death, the entire duration of your life under heaven, you're going to meet with a diversity and plethora of different kinds of times and seasons. And what's more is is notice the kind of pattern with which he communicates this. Each line kind of speaks to the reality that these rhythms of providence bring seemingly opposite times and seasons of life. It kind of weaves in and out of these opposing times and seasons. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, and there's a time to pluck, pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill, and a time to heal. There's a time to break down, and a time to build up, and so on. And so you might see here, there are these kind of two categories of times and seasons. Okay, there are times of delight, and there are times of disorientation. There are times of delight. We get in life, we experience times and seasons of delight, and we experience times and seasons of disorientation. You see, there are times of light. He says there's a time to be born. Yeah, there's a time to plant. There's a time to heal, a time to build up. There's a time to laugh, a time to dance, there's times wherein it is appropriate to gather stones, whatever that means. There's a time, there are times in life wherein it is, an, it is appropriate to embrace. There's a time to seek, a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and lastly, there's a time for peace. These are times of delight. And these times of delight, the preacher wants us to know, are gracious gifts from the hand of the sovereign God for our enjoyment and refreshment and yet we would be foolish not to recognize that there are also times and seasons of disorientation as well, aren't there? And there are times and seasons of hardship and suffering and struggle. The preacher tells us there's a time to die. It's a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn. There are times wherein it is appropriate to cast away stones There are times wherein it is appropriate to refrain from embracing. A time to lose, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to keep silence, a time to hate. There's a time for war. These are times and seasons of disorientation in our lives. These are times and seasons that we'd rather not face. Times and seasons we'd rather not have come to us. And yet they do come, don't they? Death comes for us all. Times of mourning and weeping come to us all. Times of loss come. Times of war come. We wish they wouldn't, but they do. They do indeed come. We all experience this. And these two are from the hand of God. Just as we receive times of peace and birth and laughter and dancing and embracing from God, so we also receive times of loss and death and mourning, and weeping, and war. As much as we might like to think of ourselves as as the masters of our destinies, and the captains of our lives, the reality is that you control and contribute very little to your life. You don't decide when you're born. When Your life starts without God even consulting you. You don't decide when you're born. You don't decide when you die. God decides that. You gardeners, you know this one. There is a time to pluck up what is planted. There is a time to plant. You don't decide that. God decided that in the beginning, in His creation of the times and seasons that He created and still upholds today. You don't decide when times of joy and laughter and dancing come. Nor do you decide when times of mourning and weeping come. God does. You don't have control over the times wherein you're laid off and let go from your job. Nor do you have time or control over the seasons wherein you get a new job or a raise or whatever. You don't have control over when you get sick, or when a loved one dies, or when the car needs repaired. God controls. He is providentially upholding and ordering all of this. You don't have control. And to be sure, there is a purpose and plan in all of our times and seasons and rhythms of life. I mean, we just finished the book of Ruth just a few weeks ago. And if that book demonstrated anything to us, it demonstrated in the various seasons and rhythms of life, God is working all things out according to His plans and purposes, and His plans and purposes transcend that of our various times and seasons. Part of what is unique about our passage this morning is this. The preacher recognizes and verbalizes the, the sort of frustration of, of simply not knowing what those plans and purposes are. Which brings us to our next point, the obscurity of providence. I almost called it the riddle of providence, but uh, some of you guys are really hating on my alliteration recently, and so good job remembering this point. But really, the, the preacher, he does go on, he goes on to to say basically that there, there's a kind of that God's providence in the various times and seasons of our life, is, it is kind of like a riddle that he just can't figure out. The preacher says, starting in verse 9, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see, he says in in, in verse 10 here, listen, I've seen all these kind of various activities and seasons and times and rhythms that God has ordered. I've seen the times of delight. I've seen the times of disorientation. I've seen all the actions and activities that humanity is busy with. And I'm simply left with this question, what's the purpose of it all? Is there like a pattern here? What are we actually accomplishing in our various seasons of life and the activities that we're given to in them? What's the gain of it all? And to be sure, you know, he's not saying that there's no purpose to all of life's seasons and circumstances and all of life's actions and activities. He's not saying that there's no purpose whatsoever. Look at how he he puts it in verse 11. He says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Meaning that, that God has placed within man's heart a sort of innate knowledge that there is a larger story at work here. There's a a greater overarching purpose to all of life's times and and seasons. God has a a plan and purpose that transcends our small little lives and all the seasons we face therein. We, We feel this in our heart of hearts. We know it in our bones. It's instinctual. We know that life is not random. We know that it's not meaningless. We know that there's an order, a purpose, a story that God is telling in it all. And yet, notice the preacher also says that while this instinctual sense is within our hearts, we still can't figure out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, while there is indeed a transcendent purpose and plan to it all, we can't figure it out. We don't know exactly why we face times of war and times of peace. We don't know, we're not sure why times of weeping and mourning come nor when the times of laughing and dancing come. We typically don't know why the things that happen to us happen to us, and we typically don't know why the things that happen to us happen to us when they happen to us. It's elusive. And you know, we we generally ask these kinds of questions when times of disorientation come upon us, don't we? It's Especially during those, those times and seasons that this innate, instinctual knowledge of an overarching purpose comes into the forefront in our minds, and we want to know what it is. And so we start asking questions. We long to know why we suffer in the ways that we suffer. We want to know why the loss of a loved one comes. We want to know why the illness or injury comes. We want to know why the mental health issues come. We want to know why the family divisions or tensions come. And so we ask the question, what's the purpose of all this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Try to seek out the answer, but it's elusive, isn't it? As a pastor, I've, I've been in the rooms where those questions are asked. And it's a struggle to just not be able to offer any answer. It's impossible to determine. We simply don't know. Or maybe it's not even in the seasons of particularly hard suffering. For maybe, maybe you're just getting older. <laughs> maybe as time goes on, you realize that you're just not accomplishing the things that you wanted to accomplish in life. You feel frustrated over your lack of progress in life. You're increasingly dissatisfied with your lack of progress in life. You're, dis- you're increasingly dissatisfied with the overall kind of feel that your life lacks a forward momentum. You feel stuck. Maybe it's, you're not even getting all that much older. Maybe you're just a, a person who really values being in control. You like being in control of your, your schedule and your calendar. You like to plan out your days. You've read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and you have the leather bound planner. You do the whole thing. And you're increasingly frustrated because your boss just keeps throwing a wrench in your plans. Your kids just won't get on board. Your spouse keeps kind of interrupting your, your schedule and your calendar. You have car trouble. And a family member has health problems. Then you get laid off. Whatever it is, whatever situations or circumstances you're currently facing, you're starting to realize that you actually have no control over your life and that you can't actually discern a rhyme or a reason for it all and it's making you anxious or frustrated. The preacher here, he's verbalizing this sort of frustration that we often feel. He sort of complains about the obscurity of God's providence. He's saying there's a plan and a purpose to it all. There's a plan and a purpose to all of life's seasons and circumstances, but for the life of me, I cannot figure it out. And it's frustrating, isn't it? As one commentator puts it, God's overarching plan, his, his transcendent purpose, is kind of like one of those pictures that you just can't understand until you stand back and adjust your eyes to see the whole thing. Only in this case, you can never stand back far enough to make the picture come into focus. You cannot stand outside or above time as God does. The overarching purpose of the times and seasons of your life is like It's all a part of God's plan, our births, our deaths, and everything in between. But it lies beyond that which we're able to see and understand. It lies beyond that which we're able to control and comprehend. So what's left for us then? What do, we, what do we do in light of the obscurity of God's providence? What do we do in light of the fact that we really don't know why the various times and seasons of our lives come upon us? What do we do in light of the fact that we can't control the various times and seasons that come upon us in life? The preacher says two things. He says that we ought to receive and revere God's providence. and We'll look first at the reception of providence. Pick it back up in verse 12. You see, he, he sort of answers that question he asks. What, what does man gain from all of our toil? What do we gain? He answers that with two answers. And one in verse 12, it begins, it says, I perceived. And then he answers it again, starting in verse 14, when he starts with the same phrase, I perceived. First, we see verse 12 here. I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, all that's left for us is to simply receive what God gives with gladness and to enjoy our lot in life. And please don't misunderstand. He's he's not saying there's no point or purpose to it all, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not what he's saying. This is certainly not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying that although figuring out the why behind all the happenings in our life is beyond us, we can entrust it to God and gladly receive what he gives us in life. Figuring out the purpose for all of your circumstances and seasons is too lofty for you. You're not God. You are a limited, finite creature. Therefore, instead of trying to control or comprehend all the seasons and circumstances of your life, accept your God-given limitations and simply receive what God has providentially given you. In your life, you are going to meet with times of delight. Praise God. You will meet with good times, with good friends. You will receive good gifts from the hand of God. You will meet with times of laughter with your family. You will meet with good meals, with good food and good drink. You will attend weddings and parties where you dance and laugh and and drink, and you will celebrate births and anniversaries. You will have times wherein your hearts are, are full, wherein your bellies are full, wherein your homes are full, and the preacher his advice to you is this, enjoy them, enjoy those times, enjoy them, receive them, be fully present to them. You may think it kind of silly, but one lesson I'm, I'm really trying to take to heart, it, it's, it's so hard to simply receive the good times sometimes, isn't it? For some reason, I don't know why it is, but sometimes I can't just simply enjoy what I have right in front of me. And so I'm trying to take this lesson to heart, this lesson taught, taught to me by um, Andy Bernard from my favorite TV, this favorite TV shows, The Office. Okay, so it's Goofy and uh, Andy Bernard, he's probably one of the most absurdly goofiest characters in the show, but it's fascinating to kind of watch his, his story in light of what he says in the last episode. So early on in the show, he's working at this Dunder Mifflin paper company, this branch, Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, and he, he almost incessantly talks about his college days, right? He went to Cornell University. He sang in the a cappella group, Here Comes Treble, with his best friend, Broccoli Rob, and he's always talking about this. He's always talking about Here Comes Treble and Broccoli Rob and Cornell. He's constantly remembering all this and, and telling his co-workers all about it. And then later on, Andy becomes the, the manager of this Dunder Mifflin branch, but he seems to become increasingly discontent with his lot in life. He begins to to kind of hunger for something else, something different, something more. And long story short, he eventually gets his dream job at Cornell University, doing exactly what he's always wanted to do. And yet he comes back to the office on the very last episode, and he says something so profound. He says, the weird thing is, now I'm exactly where I want to be. I've got my dream job at Cornell, and I'm still just thinking about my old pals, only now they're the ones I made here. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Don't you see, that's, that's actually part of what the preacher is calling us to do here. He's calling us to recognize the times and seasons of delight in our lives, it's calling us to actually recognize and celebrate the times of birth and the times of laughter. It's calling us to recognize the seasons of dancing and embracing and healing, to take the good old days as they come, to be fully present to them and to enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with doing that. that this is wisdom. Enjoy the good old days while you are in them, be fully present to the seasons and times of delight in your life. However, as we know, we don't just receive times of delight from God's hand. We also receive times of disorientation from God's hand. As Job asks his wife in Job 2.10, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Still here in, in the times of disorientation, wisdom would have us accept our limitations and receive what God gives us. Not in a stiff kind of stoicism, but rather with a trusting recognition that while we don't know everything that God knows, we know that He is good. As the old hymn says God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Friends, that's why we receive, not only receive his providence, but we revere his providence. And this is what the preacher would have us do. Because we are utterly time-bound and limited, because we're unable to discern the beginning from the end, and because we can't alter our times with our actions and activities, all that's left for us is to simply revere God's providence, and entrusting our times and seasons to Him. As the psalmist confesses to the sovereign God of the cosmos in Psalm 31, 15, he says, my times are in your hands. And this is really what the preacher calls us to do in verse 14 here, to make that confession. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that his people, so that people should fear before him. All that's left is for us to fear him. Now, again, please don't misunderstand that. Here, to to fear God, to revere him, doesn't mean to be scared of God. Okay, God doesn't want you to be scared of him. It means to to recognize that what God does and what God knows is far too lofty for you. And so in this context, it means to, to simply do something closer to like trust him. It means to trust him. It it, it means to accept your limitations and simply trust Him. And Philip Graham Ryken says, he says, To fear God is to rest our lives on the only solid foundation for time and eternity. To fear God is to trust in His foreknowledge, believing that He knows all things, including our present joys and trials. Martin Luther says, it. he says, this is what it means to fear God, to have God in view, to know that he looks at all our works and to acknowledge him as the author of all things. You see, to, to fear God, to revere his providence, to trust in him and believe that he is in control. That, that's what it means to fear God. Even when we cannot see or discern what he is doing, it means to still trust him and that he is in control. It means to believe in the doctrine of God's absolute providence and sovereignty. It means to accept that He is the one and only true God, and therefore the only one who is worthy and able to be in control and in charge of our lives. It means to rest in the fact that all of your times, your past, your present, and future are all completely in His hands, and to simply rest in that. Which, if we're honest, can be a hard thing to do, can't it? But I also want you to realize, as we begin to close here this morning, that the God who providentially marks out your times is the same God who loves you more than you ever dared to dream or hope. Whatever times and seasons you meet with in your life are not out of His control, and they're most certainly not without his care. No, the God, the God who is sovereign over your times is also the God who is working all things out for your good. How can we be assured of that? How do we actually know that the, the, the God who providentially marks out our times and seasons of life is the God who loves us more than we ever dared to hope? Because what we read earlier in Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, at, at, at the right time, the most perfect time, at the very moment in human history when God's sovereign and providential oversight had prepared the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, came. And he stepped into time and into human vesture. And he subjected himself to all the various times and seasons of life that had been ordained from the beginning. At the very right time, he was born. And eventually, at the very right moment for us and for our salvation, he, the author of our life and our times, died. And his death was no ordinary death. His death was a death for the sake of our salvation. He died, he was executed on a Roman cross, but his death on that cross wasn't just a death at the hand of the Romans. It was a death planned and purposed by the hand of the sovereign God himself. As Peter says in Acts 2.23, it was a death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Indeed, God planned that Jesus would go to the cross as perfect man, as the embodiment of divine wisdom, so that he would die the death that we deserve to die in our place, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin and death so that we would no longer be orphans, so that we would no longer be ignorant of the loving, caring father that we have, so that we would be forgiven of all our sins, so that we would become children of God. And now if you repent and trust in him, you are his very own child. And because you're his child, you can rest assured that the times and seasons he marks out for you, They're certainly not out of His control, and they're certainly not without His care. Rather, the times and seasons He marks out for you are ultimately ordered and given to you for your good. God is ordering all things for your benefit. The times and seasons of delight... These are gifts from the hand of your loving, gracious Father. Receive them, enjoy them, be fully present to them. And even in the hard things, in the times of in seasons of disorientation, even in the times and seasons of hardship, we may not know why they come or what they're supposed to accomplish or what the gain in them is. We can rest assured, because of the person and work of Jesus, because of our adoption in him as God's children, it's not because he's angry with us. And it's not because he doesn't care. Rather, whatever the reason or purpose may be, it's all being worked out for your good. Because he loves you. Christ and his cross gives you assurance of it. Therefore, in the rhythms and obscurity of God's providence, may we gladly receive what he gives us. And even in the seasons and times of disorientation, may we trust him in the midst of it all. Wisdom calls us to trust God and receive the seasons and times he marks out for us. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. As we come to the table, may we behold the Christ who in the fullness of time came for us and for our salvation and died the death that we deserve. Help us to trust you, to know that all of our times and seasons are in your hand, to know that they are in good hands.